Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe? Ukraine will fight. Ukraine will stand. Israel is at war. It was forced upon us in the most brutal and savage way. Our world is becoming unhinged. Geopolitical tensions are rising. Global challenges are mounting. That was 2023 in a nutshell. No doubt it's been a turbulent year. We've seen the war in Ukraine continue and the start of a new one in the Middle East earth-shaking elections in various European countries, and multiple crises right here in the heart of Europe. Longtime diplomats say the latest arguments about migration and enlargement are some of the most bitter they've ever seen. Meanwhile, polarizing debates about the environment and ethics overhaul show that the parliament's old political alignments are crumbling. We need to restore citizens' trust and give them guarantees that our democracy is not open to covered foreign interference. Even talking about the weather is stressful, with wildfires and heat waves making Europe's paradises turn into hellscapes. Hundreds of firefighters are continuing to tackle wildfires across Europe and the Mediterranean. In case you haven't heard, scientists have just confirmed that 2023 will be the hottest year on record. But it wasn't all division and doom. Croatia has dropped its currency, the kuna. Croatia joined the Eurozone and Finland joined NATO. We welcome Finland as the newest member of our alliance. Ukraine and Moldova made giant leaps on their road to joining the EU. This is Europe's moment to answer the call of history. Voters in Poland and the Netherlands reminded us of the unpredictable power of democracy. Elections brought the return of pro-Europeans to Warsaw. While a right-wing populist came in first in that soothingly stable, famously frugal Netherlands. The union's new digital rules once again set global standards. And EU lawmakers just clinched a deal on containing our future robot overlords after marathon negotiations about the AI Act. So what else will make it into the history books? I'm Sarah Wheaton, host of EU Confidential. And since this is our last episode of the year, we're taking stock. We look back at 2023, both here in Brussels and further afield across Europe, and try to discuss the events, debates, and trends that were the most significant and why. And make sure you stick around until the very end of the episode. We'll reveal Politico's most read story of the year. So stay tuned. But first, to tell us more about the top stories that dominated Brussels in 2023, I have a panel of key Politico editors with a wide range of expertise. Let's welcome Joanna Roberts, our health editor. Hi, Sarah. Aoife White, who leads our tech team. Hello. 
Janczynski, our defense editor. Hi. And Jamie Detmer, who's been reporting from War Zones for Politico. Hello. So, Eva, let's start with you. We're looking back across the big events of 2023. And since my memory is mediocre, I'm going to start with the most recent thing that kind of stands out in my mind, which is last week, we just saw these pictures of uh, Thierry Breton and, and Vera Yorova tweeting or exiting from their marathon negotiations about the AI Act. What happened? Are we going to control this crazy force that just completely consumed the whole conversation in 2023? Well, I mean, the EU looked really smart because when ChatGPT broke out last year. We had it was only November, end of November last year, and this just just suddenly dominate the conversation. You know, the robots were here and, and they were taking over. That hasn't happened quite the way we expected. I mean, it's certainly a tool that people seem to like using, but it hasn't caused the revolution that everybody's still waiting to happen. Whether this is that it has industrial applications or that we'll see AI being used widely. I mean, AI has been there for a while, but this was the year of AI. And of course, the EU looked really smart because it already had a dish ready prepared, which was the AI Act, which has been in the works for some time now. And there was a big push to get something done and get get it ready and be out there first. The Brussels effect, you know, lead the world. So they finally did a deal, which was something they wanted to do very much by the end of the year to say, we, we're here, we have principles, we have a way of handling this scary new technology. And that's great. But there are still many, many questions that are left open and we'll deal with them in the years to come. Well, so Eva, what does this legislation actually try to do? Well, it's a sensible piece of legislation in many ways. You know, you have some vague guardrails about what AI should be. I mean, it's a technology and it's based on what you put in. So maybe you should have some rules about what you put in on bias. If you train a, a data model on, you know, Reddit and crazy people saying crazy things, you know, what's going to come out of that? So be a bit more mindful about how you train the product and how it should work. And those, those are all very nice, sober things. But the odd thing about this technology is that we're being told that it could put humanity out of business. And, and that, that is not something that the AI Act gets into, and nor should it necessarily. But it may be a bit more tangible as something like military use of AI and, uh, you know, killer robots. And again, that is not what the AI Act necessarily does. So this is where we have a possibility of automating things that exist. But how far we go with that is very open. It feels like we're very much at the beginning of this field. Mm -hmm. Brussels dipped its toes in. But I mean, our regular people maybe who like to play with ChatGPT, are they going to feel the effects of the AI Act? Um, if it's how it's trained, depending what's come out, maybe. Okay, fair enough. So we often criticize Brussels for moving slow. They moved fast in this case. But yeah, it remains to be seen if it will actually have staying power. You mentioned this idea of the Brussels effect, which is this idea that, especially in tech, that Brussels might legislate on something and the rest of the world and the rest of the industry has to follow because, again, Brussels was kind of first and the most most aggressive with the regulation. And so in that vein, we also saw the Digital Services Act go into effect. It's a very ambiguous name. How's that going, that implementation? Well, it really kicks in next year. But this is maybe the high point of the Brussels effect. Maybe I'm unfair to say that. But it's a time where Brussels, the European Commission, has said lots of things that it wants to do. And it has put laws on its books. And it all looks very scary. And it's you know, going to take care of this scary new world for us, this online world, uh, which is, frankly, quite scary. I mean, you see massive amounts of disinformation. We have a conflict across the world in the last few months, even. We've seen huge amounts of stuff spewing out on, on social media. How do you tackle that? How do you tackle all these harms? What do you make companies do? But from an EU point of view, yes, it's all handled. We have laws on the books and it's all great. And uh, that's fantastic. And we'll see where it goes. We haven't really seen the second part of that is how effective it is. 
So the ambitions are high. If it's a Brussels effect, the idea is also to tell the rest of the world that it's great. The Commission, the European Union is in charge of these things and totally on it. That has been said. Has it been done? We'll see. Indeed. And one of the people who loves to say that sort of thing is, is a single market commissioner, Thierry Breton. The deal uh, that we reached is a complete deal. It was not easy, but we managed it. A lot of people told us, impossible. You will have all the lobbies against, uh, against you. We had a lot of lobbies against us. And we need the deal. One of the things that we've seen over uh, starting in 2022 and in 2023 really built up was Breton and others in Brussels saying, look, we're going to make the social media space a sort of safer, more reliable place. And Elon Musk saying, nope, I'm going to make it more my particular version of free speech. He took away Twitter, turned it into X. People in the bubble have been really struggling with how to deal with this. What types of decisions are they are they arriving at? Well, I think the most interesting one is how far you support Twitter, if you're unhappy about the things that are happening under the new management. And it was very interesting to see the commission pull advertising. But is Twitter being used less? Not really. I mean, that surprises me a little bit. I mean, we were all looking around for alternatives and trying to see what works. I mean, there's Blue Sky and various other things, but but Twitter's still used. I see a lot of commission people still on Twitter. I see a lot of the EU bubble still on Twitter. I mean, it is a zombie that won't die. It's it's It matters. It's a public space. Whether that continues looks like it's under threat. I mean, you, you're seeing it's a platform that's maybe less useful, but until there's something else that comes in there, it's still powerful. I mean, all of this media matters as long as people want to use it. And when there is a viable alternative, maybe they won't. But the commission seems to still love Twitter and still seems to be tweeting very happily on it. Right. It's kind of a funny irony. They said they wouldn't pay to advertise on it anymore, right? But commissioners still still use it. Well, they say they need to be where the people are. So there you are. Vote with your clicks. Exactly. You just made that uh, the song from The Little Mermaid come into my head. But um, <laughs> I'm still using Twitter, X, whatever it's called, I must confess. But LinkedIn has also become one of my spots where I hang out. Joanna... Let me turn to you. So I used to be a health policy reporter. You're the health editor. And people just used to love to tell me at parties when I told them I covered health, they were like, oh, but that's not an EU competence. And I was like, yeah, thanks. I write about it. I think I know. But uh, in COVID, we sort of learned that uh, it doesn't matter who officially has authority. In 2023, as we sort of really emerged into somewhat normalcy, what are the lessons that you saw being sort of carried forward from the COVID period? Yeah, I recognise definitely that sentiment of health isn't an EU competence. It's very much based within the member states. But at the same time, I think that COVID, I mean, health at a European level has had a big boost, both in terms of budget. So people suddenly realised that actually you know, health doesn't have national borders. Health is, you know, a thing that affects everybody and you can't really stop, you know, viruses just because, you know, you're not in the single market. So it's had a big boost in terms of budget, but also in prominence. And I think 2023 was... People working out really how to capitalise on that, really how to sort of keep this momentum going forward, particularly in the health policy community that suddenly sort of were recognised maybe after sort of years in the dark. There's a feeling that if we don't act now, health might fall off the agenda again. But actually, also, I think, a recognition that it's fundamental. You know, it's one of our, the most basic things that you can give someone, you know, for governments to give populations. You know, health is really important. We've seen it play a role in some of the elections, sort of in the Dutch elections, for example. 
Geert Wilders campaigned slightly on sort of lack of investment in healthcare. Mm-hmm. So it, it really is, if you ignore it, it's, it can turn into this sort of populist issue. It's almost like cost of living. It really affects people's lives. That's really interesting. Well, and on that cost point, one area where Brussels has a huge amount of influence, and this is why there are so many pharma lobbyists walking around town, is because Brussels has a lot of control over drug prices. And right before the pandemic, things were gearing up to rewrite the regulations that can really affect drug prices. And I know that the industry really hoped that when they saved the world with their amazing vaccines, that suddenly everybody would be much more open to, you know, funding regulation, doing whatever they wanted on uh, some of the intellectual property and things that underpin drug prices. How's it going for pharma with the pharma regs? Yeah, you're right. 2023 was quite a pivotal year. So after much delay, the commission eventually published its overhaul of the EU's medicines rules in April. Being Politico, we got our hands on a copy sort of a couple of months earlier and we're going through it. But I think industry were actually quite surprised at how, well, in their view, harsh the proposal is on their bottom line. And I think it's quite sort of ambitious of the commission they've they've really framed the legislation which can't you know it gets into the nitty-gritty it's very technical it talks about incentives and data protection periods and so on but they framed it in a very you know along the lines of affordability and availability of medicines for people who live within the eu and at the launch the health commissioner Stella Kyriakides quoted Bono actually saying, you know, where you live shouldn't determine whether you live or die. And she really was referencing the fact that medicines access in Europe is very uneven. People in Germany get access to medicines two years before someone living in Romania. So these are sort of fundamental rights issues. And the commission have really gone in with that perspective and suggested some changes to the rules that have not gone down well with industry, to say the very least, who've been arguing that, you know, the rules will threaten competitiveness, they'll have to go and produce medicines elsewhere. And um, that's sort of gearing up to be a very major battle in the coming months. As you said, the cost of, of healthcare became an issue in the in the Dutch elections. We're also seeing, looking at the US, President Joe Biden suddenly taking a harsher approach towards pharma also, obviously in anticipation of his re-election campaign. Speaking of elections, we had several important ones in 2023. Joanna mentioned the Netherlands. We also had Greece, Spain, Poland. Jan, you live in Poland a good half the time. I migrate back and forth across the continent. Yes, we we often see you in meetings uh, from the airport. The Polish elections were a big shock. Where do things stand with Donald Tusk and how will his return shape EU policymaking in 2024? I think there's an argument to be made that the Polish election was probably the most significant in Europe for 2023. And the message that was taken in Brussels and in the rest of the continent was that a firmly entrenched populist government with all of the power and money and institutions under its control can still be beaten. And so that's sort of a heartening message where people uh, look at the rise of the far right and of populist parties with that sort of view that this is an existential threat to European democracy, that once in these people can't ever be turfed out again. And uh, the defeat of law and justice showed that that's not actually the case. And I think in in what happened in Poland, Donald Tusk, who was the prime minister from 2007 to 14 and then spent five years as the European Council president here in in Brussels, he played a really pivotal role. Uh, The opposition had tried twice before to defeat law and justice in other elections, and they just lacked spark and charisma and ability to galvanize people. And a lot of people don't like Tusk, but he is a good politician, and he does have that ability to 
motivate and galvanize people. And I think that his victory is very much his victory. I think if he had not, if he had stayed in retirement and gone off to lecture at Harvard and make some extra money for himself, I'm pretty sure that we'd be looking at a third term for law and justice beginning right now. So he came in, he marshaled the support for his own party and also helped he wasn't particularly jealous with his support. He tried to create a united front of opposition parties that weren't part of his own party with the overall message that we all have to work together to defeat law and justice and get these guys out of power. And that actually worked. So the October 15th election was a surprise in that law and justice was the largest party. They won the election in a sense, but they had such tense relations with all other parties that they were unable to form a coalition with anybody else. And Donald Tusk and his uh, opposition coalition is now in, in power in Poland, and he's in, he's in Brussels as we speak. Welcome back. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome back. I'm really happy to be here again. Yeah, it's, Poland is back here in Europe, and this is, for me, the most important moment in, in my political life, I think. It wasn't an easy task, as you know. It's also a very special moment because of the geopolitical context. And I'm a little bit sad that, uh, in fact, nothing has changed. The situation is even worse and worse when it comes especially to, to Ukraine and the Russian aggression. And it'll be interesting to see if a similar thing plays out in the Netherlands where Heert Wilders did, he did win, but we're still seeing if he's able to actually form a coalition. At the same time, you know, what you describe as far as opposition groups kind of creating a, a very broad alliance that didn't work in Hungary. It didn't. I, I'm not an expert in Hungarian politics, but I think what they really lacked is a charismatic leader which is the sort of fuel that Tusk provided to the election campaign. I think there's a mix of organization and personality which has to happen. And, and in Poland's case, that worked. In other cases, there were missing elements of that that didn't allow that to happen. Yeah, really interesting. I mean, we like to talk about the different issues, whether they're local level or European level that might drive elections. But ultimately, yeah, a lot of the times it's personality and people are choosing individual leaders. Yeah, it's not all big historic trends. Humans do play a role. Mm -hmm. Jamie, let me go over to you. Any thoughts from the elections that we saw in 2023 that you think could play out um, in the parliament elections next year? Uh, you know, I think we will have to watch out for a gathering populist storm. I, I take Jan's point about the Polish election was interesting that we saw an embedded and entrenched uh, populist nationalist party thrown out of government, although, as Jan emphasised, they still were the largest party. I think that we will see uh, more populist victories across Europe. I do think it talks to a disconnect between establishment parties, centrist politicians, and some pretty desperate voters out there who you know, are being hit hard by the cost of living crisis and feel, I think, basically that they're not listened to. I do think there's a tendency, particularly in Brussels and the capitals, to think life is like Brussels and the capitals. But once you start going outside them, you see people, ordinary people in small towns and villages really struggling at the moment with the consequences of the cost of living and feel that they are not being heeded by their politicians. I think that is going to be a theme that continues next year. Thank you, Jamie. Really important point about the need to get outside of Brussels. And that's why when we come back from our break, we're going to talk to you about Ukraine. We're also going to talk about defense more broadly, the Israel-Hamas war. But before we do that, I just want to say that if you were enjoying our initial conversation about the AI Act and you want even more, then make sure that you check out our sister podcast, Politico Tech, where host Stephen Overly speaks to Dragos Chudarake, an MEP who played a key role in the negotiations. Sometimes the clash, the tension is, is real. And we had real moments of tension and, and clash during these negotiations. But 
what's important is that at the end uh, you shake hands and you reach a deal and we managed to do that so um, yes if someone wants to know whether we had difficult moments yes we did so we'll put a link to that episode in our show notes introducing wondersuite from bluehost.com website creation is hard But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. A message from EPRA. In an era where the green transition and retirement security are top priorities for the next EU Commission, listed real estate is a dual force in addressing these global megatrends. As the world strives to meet the Paris Agreement's objectives, the sector provides transformation to Europe's building stock, significantly reducing our carbon footprint and advancing sustainable development goals. Amid financial uncertainties, particularly around retirement income, Listed real estate offers a resilient investment choice, promising stability, growth, and positive social impacts. It provides crucial infrastructure Europe needs, from healthcare facilities to sustainable housing, ensuring a greener, more secure future for millions. EPRA and its members are dedicated to leveraging this potential, working alongside EU institutions to foster investments that build and benefit society and Europe. Welcome back. I'm joined by our brain trust of policy editors here at Politico, as well as Jamie Detmer, who is sometimes our opinion editor and sometimes our war correspondent. Uh, So Jamie, with your war correspondent hat on, we're towards the end of the second year of the war in Ukraine. When we started off this year, there was a lot of uh, enthusiasm about seeing what this big Ukrainian counteroffensive was going to look like. But Jamie, how's that actually going? Well, the counteroffensive didn't meet expectations. I mean, I think in some ways, the expectations were way too high, uh, partly because the Ukrainians themselves were pushing, arguing they'd be very successful the more weaponry they got. And so they're in a difficult position. If they weren't talking up the counteroffensive, they might not attract the weaponry that they needed. But there is a bit of a blame game going around about why this counteroffensive didn't reach the expectations that people had for it. it. They've only advanced really a few miles in the south and with large casualties on both sides, obviously, and a great expenditure of weaponry. I think that the blame game that's going on now really is partly the Ukrainians saying they didn't get the weapons that they needed. American security people, officials saying they didn't really use the tactics that we were teaching them in combined warfare when you use artillery, when you use infantry, uh, or carefully coordinated. Another question about the counteroffensive was, did they get the right training from NATO? I mean, uh, the Ukrainians feel that there were lapses in the training that they got, that it was too short. You're trying to teach people very complicated combined warfare maneuvers in about two weeks. It was never going to come off. So now we've got the results of a counteroffensive that wasn't hugely successful. And people are now questioning whether Ukraine can ever really break through. I think there's a lot of underestimation as well of uh, the Russian defense capabilities. I mean, one thing Russia does do well is build defense fortifications. Their engineers tend to be extremely good. 
I think that was underestimated. So this has happened at a time, of course, of greater fatigue with the war, with money worries, political divisions. It looks to me like a pretty grim and difficult winter and next year for the Ukrainians. So, Jamie, given the, the disappointment of this counteroffensive, how is that affecting people's thinking of how long this war might actually last? I mean, it must affect timing of a potential endgame. I mean, Zelensky is, of course, saying and his officials and broadly across the political spectrum in Ukraine that they'll fight all the way, that Ukraine will fight on even if they get reduced international support. And international support is going to be difficult for them, partly because in America it's been entangled with domestic politics and the Republicans are blocking you know, more military aid for Ukraine. When you say if it's possible without help, it's possible like it was. It's difficult and you lose a lot of people. If you want not to lose your lives, your society, of course you need real strong defending shield. You can have it if the world, if uh, Europe in unity around Ukraine. Of course, you can't win without help, but you can't lose because that is only you have. This is your country. I think it's also beginning because frustrations are building in Ukraine. I do sense that the lid that was on partisan domestic politics in Ukraine is coming off now. There is a increasing criticism of how Zelensky is running the country, the direction of the war. I think you're going to see more calls for Zelensky bringing in more opposition, senior opposition people into, let's say, a more broad-based unity government. And I did sense... Uh, this summer when I was in Ukraine, even before we got, yeah, as the counteroffensive was still underway, I did get a sense of fatigue amongst ordinary Ukrainians. I did get, this time for the first time, some people saying to me, well, I hope the sacrifice is, is worth it. You know, I hope we're right about trying to fight, you know, to keep all of the Donbass or to get all the Donbass back. So I do sense a, a fatigue amongst ordinary folk as well. Well, wow, I mean, that's really striking if there's fatigue in Ukraine. And, you know, as you said, Zelensky's having problems in Washington, but things are also getting more complicated for him here in Brussels. Jan, how has the EU's, whether we're talking about the member countries or, or kind of Brussels, uh, the institutions, how has the approach to Ukraine and the support level evolved over the past year? You know, as Jamie noted, you know, there's a political strife over aid to Ukraine in Washington. We're seeing similar things happen in the EU. Viktor Orban, the Hungarian prime minister, has long been, I guess, more of an advocate of the Kremlin than any other uh, EU leader. And he is now openly trying to block uh, the EU's aid to Ukraine, including uh, military aid. And, and I, we should say, as we are recording right now, the EU leaders, as you mentioned, Tusk, but also all of the rest of the EU leaders are meeting down the street for these marathon negotiations. Yeah, and it's going to be a huge fight, which is happening right now with the Hungarians. The Hungarians have put their uh, rule of law issues where the EU has blocked uh, the transfer of, uh, of EU funds to Hungary for its backsliding on democratic principles. And the Hungarians want that money in return for releasing the lock on Ukrainian aid. There's also been the, uh, the victory of Robert Fico in Slovakia, who has also said that he is stopping the shipment of, uh, of weapons to Ukraine. Ifa mentioned uh, Kurt Wilders in the Netherlands, who's also not a big fan of uh, supporting and arming Ukraine. 
I mean, still the mainstream of the EU is very pro-Ukrainian. The German government is adamantly pro-Ukrainian. Berlin has said that if uh, aid falters from other countries, that the Germans will step up. Germany is now the number two uh, military aid giver to Ukraine of uh, any other country in the world, uh, second only to the United States. Europe has the financial and industrial capacity to help. It's a question of political and financial will if they want to do that. But there is certainly a sense of exhaustion. However, you know, as, as Jamie was saying, there's an exhaustion in Kiev as well. The Russians have no indication at all that they are prepared to stop the war. Vladimir Putin just had his annual staged press conference where he was clear that the goals, he said, the goals of the war have not changed, which means denazification in Russian terms, demilitarization, which is the absolute conquest of Ukraine and the imposition of a Russian-led government in Kiev. So the Ukrainians may not like the war, may not want to continue the war, but there's no off-ramp for them. They either, if they don't fight, they lose. So it's not like they have the luxury of saying, well, this seems okay, let's just stop at this point. There is no, no stopping because the Russians don't want to stop. I thought Putin, in his end of the year conference, he did come across to me as more confident than he has in some of his comments in, in the past. He seemed a little bit more valiant. I mean, the worrying thing there, of course, he's saying that there's 600,000 Russian troops now fighting in Ukraine, which is double the number that we used to launch the initial attack. I think the problem for the West in many ways is that they partly have underestimated the fact that Putin was able to run a prolonged war. I think we underestimated in many ways the stamina that the Russian political system would have. I think we overestimated the effect sanctions would have on Russia and whether that would encourage opposition or greater opposition to Putin. And they really have proved that they can dig in. And it's all about a waiting game for Putin. He thinks he can wait out the West resolve on this. Well, speaking of that resolve, we just talked about Europe's support for Ukraine, but there's also been maybe a wake-up call over the past several years, and especially in 2023, about Europe's own sort of defense capabilities. And in response to that, Jan, your, your beat this year changed from being the energy editor to the defense editor for our new Defense Pro section. We saw Finland join NATO. Sweden is trying to join, being a bit held up by Hungary. What other things did you see over the past year as far as Europe building up its own defense capacity? I think that sort of like what Joanna said about the uh, the EU playing this much greater role in healthcare thanks to the COVID pandemic, we're seeing a similar dynamic happen because of the war in Ukraine, that um, <clears throat> the EU was an incredibly marginal player in, in defense policy, in procurement. I mean, they would sort of dabble in things like military mobility, being able to sort of reinforce bridges and roads so that you could move heavy equipment around. They really, the, the, all of the action and all of the money was in the national capitals, working together and then working within NATO uh, with the Americans. That was was, that was the, the defense structure. And now the EU has uh, repurposed some programs. There's an alphabet soup of various projects, programs that are designed both to funnel money towards Ukraine, to reimburse uh, member countries for the weapons that they give uh, Ukraine. Uh, also a really strong emphasis on creating transnational cooperation programs to build up military capacity to work on, on joint projects. In February of next year, Thierry Breton is going to present an EU defense policy, which in some respects shadows American efforts. The Americans have a huge advantage because when their defense companies are selling jet fighters or tanks or whatever, it's not just an American company 
Raytheon or whatever selling it. It's the Pentagon. Washington is behind that sale, has to approve that sale. European companies are much more out on their own. If Leonardo is selling a system, it's Leonardo and they have like a letter from the Italian government, but it's not the same. And so the EU wants to beef up the political backing that uh, that European defense companies have and also to set up more strategic autonomy. There's Trump, potential return of Trump lurking in the background, the potential collapse of NATO if that happens. And so there's a real sense in European capitals that they need to be much more self-sustaining when it comes to defense budgets and defense programs and even weapons systems that there's no long-term certainty of where the Americans are going to be. And with the Russian aggression, Russia is going to be an, an enemy, not an opponent, but an enemy for the foreseeable future. We have to spend way more on defense than we've been spending. And it has to be a much higher and a, a more serious priority than it's been. Now, and the EU is playing a much bigger role than it would have been uh, three or four years ago. So the other thing really complicating EU foreign policy and EU unity has been the Israel-Hamas war that stemmed from the October 7th attacks and now Israel's attack on Gaza. Jamie, how would you describe the EU's response and what does it say broadly about the bloc? I think you can say three immediate things about the response. One, it exposed divisions within the European Union. Secondly, they've scrambled to try to find some unity in terms of their response to the war, to the Hamas attack. They were all united, all condemned it. But Israel's war on Hamas has obviously caused a split. And we saw that in how the European Union countries have been voting in uh, resolutions calling for an immediate ceasefire, humanitarian ceasefire in October. And then a week ago, there was a split there. And then I think the third point one has to make is Europe is rather marginalized on this in terms of being one of the players that can really influence what happens there. By that, I mean, you know, the key players are, in the end, the Americans, uh, the Israelis, the Palestinians themselves, of course, nearby countries like Egypt and Iran. The Europeans don't have the leverage that the Americans can have. Though they're marginalized in many ways from being able to influence the politics there, they're not immune from the fallout, of course, of the Israeli-Hamas war. By that, I mean we saw massive protests uh, in the last few weeks in Europe. It's roiled, in many ways, domestic European politics. We've seen a very troubling spike in anti-Semitism there. The divisions were pretty much clear at the beginning when you had, if you recall, the Hungarian commissioner announcing that all aid to Palestine, European aid, would end Burrell, the EU's top diplomat, had to kind of pull that back and do some damage control on it. Then you had criticism of von der Leyen when she went to Israel. So I think those divisions will continue. Well, really interesting that we started off with talking about tech policy, the Brussels effect, an area where Europe is really kind of driving the agenda and now concluding on some of these foreign policy issues where Brussels is a little bit more just having to kind of react without having as much agency as it would like, in part because of some of the divisions that Jamie was just outlining. So on that note, um, any stories that we might have missed? in this discussion. I have another hat, which is mobility editor. And uh, we didn't talk about the agreement in the EU to phase out combustion engine cars by 2035, which was a really big move 
politically fraught, huge battles fought over that, some of which are still ongoing. And it's a real international signal that the era of the gasoline and diesel car is ending. And uh, the only viable technology at the moment is electric vehicles. So it's basically Europe, joined by other countries, the UK is in a similar boat, California and other, uh, and other jurisdictions, that EVs are the long-term future of uh, transport. Well, this year we saw the whole effort to get Ukraine to be able to join the EU. It got tremendous impetus. It's been a, a constant discussion and throughout the year, throughout the counteroffensive as well. It is a giant step for Ukraine. There are some who think that Ukraine is not ready and that the EU may not be ready for Ukraine. But it is a key moment in this Ukrainian war effort in many ways, it's helped to uh, increase confidence in Ukraine and a sense of direction for them. On the other hand, it has slightly irritated in many ways some of the Balkan countries who've been waiting for a long time to see progress on their efforts to join the bloc. I'd like to talk a little bit about psychedelics. Um, <laughs> so this is the year that basically drug developers and particularly the European Medicines Agency, the drugs regulator, are seriously now looking at um, psychedelic drugs such as ketamine and MDMA for treating things like depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety. And that sort of comes in parallel with the fact that this is the year the sort of lots of the COVID bill has come and we're now um, paying for some of the policies that were taken during COVID, including lockdown. So there's been a big crisis in mental health, particularly amongst young people, soaring rates of depression, anxiety. And that really sort of hit the or captured the tension at the political and policy level this year. The Commission certainly recognised it mid-year when they put out their approach to mental health, which was sort of roundly condemned as just being a repackaging of existing measures, but at least sort of put a flag, you know, in the issue that they were taking it seriously. A couple of days ago, the European Parliament voted through their report on mental health, which is calling for the European Commission to do more, to put more money into it for, through Horizon in the next budget. They're calling for the Commission to come out with a proper mental health strategy that's not just a repackaging of existing measures. And for next year, 2024, to become the European Year of Mental Health. And sort of beyond that, beyond the actual institutions, there's a lot of talk in health policy areas about looking forward at the next Commission and saying that actually well-being, our mental health, is so important that it should be actually a Commission vice president level position because it's not just sort of segregated in the health sector. Actually, it sort of overlaps with a lot of different areas, for example, tech and the impact of social media and, and so on on our mental health. Yeah, I think a lot of the things we were talking about there about Ukraine or particularly about the Hamas-Israeli conflict, I mean, these are images that we all see I mean, particularly on the Hamas attacks, the images are there or are very much online. I mean, one that sticks in my mind is the Brussels shootings where somebody got their phone and was, was you could see the attacker shoot these uh, football fans. It was online within an hour. We're very faced with a huge amount of content, a huge amount. These things become very real to us in a way that maybe our parents wouldn't have experienced and what does this do to us? I don't know. I mean, we have we have rules that are looking at how to curb some of this content online. But I think more tangibly, we've seen some interesting things in the last couple of weeks from the European Parliament. One was a vote on addictive services, addictive digital services. I mean, we love our little phones. And should we be able to switch those off? And how are these services designed to pull us in and keep us tapping away? Another thing was the right to disconnect, that employees should be able to say, I'm, I'm not picking up my phone at the weekend or after hours. 
or at Christmas time, indeed. Well, Eva, that's a great note to end on. Um, of course, everybody has the right to disconnect, but we hope you'll stick with us a little longer before you actually disconnect because we have a great uh, one more thing left for you before we come back from the break. Um, meanwhile, I'm sure Eva, Jan, Joanna, and Jamie are ready to disconnect from this conversation and get back to their regular jobs. So thank you so much for joining us and wishing everybody happy holidays and a great new year. Thanks very much. Thanks, Sarah. And Joanna, thank you for keeping it groovy. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> And before we go, as promised, we wanted to bring you Politico Europe's most read, most clicked story of the year. And so to tell us more, let's welcome Clea Calcutt, our senior France correspondent. Salut, Clea. Hi, Sarah. So, Clea, you're our France correspondent. We're assuming the story had something to do with Emmanuel Macron. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, so the French president gave us this big interview on his way back from China. So earlier this year, he went to see Xi Jinping in China and he spent a lot of time with him. He went to Beijing and then he went further south in the country. We had pictures of him drinking tea with the Chinese leader and he spoke to us on his way back and we were very keen at the time to find out what his thoughts were on China. So what happened was that our editor-in-chief, Jamil Andalini, was on the plane with Emmanuel Macron. I was on the ground at the time reporting on the actual visits and he managed to sit down for quite a lengthy time with the French president on the plane. At the time, France was really keen to try and push for China to play a role with Ukraine. And it was quite astounding because what Jamil found is that Macron's statements, you know, upset quite a few people. I mean, he said things like Europe should not be America's followers, that Europe can't really be credible on Taiwan, and that the greatest risk Europe plays is to get caught in crises that are not ours. Their comments that have landed the French president in hot water. During his trip to China, French President Emmanuel Macron questioned America's support of Taiwan. In an interview with Politico, he said, the question Europeans need to answer is, is it in our best interest to accelerate a crisis on Taiwan? He went on to say no. Exactly what the Chinese want to hear. He suggested the bloc should not get involved in Beijing and Washington's dispute over the self-ruled island and defended the EU's autonomy. In Washington, the reaction was strained. This sort of commentary from Macron uh, really creates, you know, makes some alarm bells go off. Yeah, and, I mean, he caught a lot of flack for it. And so what's your sense of why this resonated so much with readers, not just in Europe, but around the world? Well, I think it resonated a lot because this was an interview given straight after the trip on his way back. And so a lot of people were wondering, and I mean, in crude terms, had Emmanuel Macron fallen under Xi Jinping's charm? Uh, did he turn the French leader? You know, he's, he's actually visiting China, Taiwan right next door. It's an odd moment to sort of say, oh, we can't be credible on Taiwan. And it sort of pointed to this ongoing and historic ambiguity about France, which is that it is in the Western camp. It's part of NATO. It's one of the US's top allies. But it tries to cultivate its sort of own voice. And sometimes that works. And sometimes it just looks like he's playing against his camp. So, for instance, if there were a war or if conflict increased between China and the US, where would France go? France would naturally side with the US 
guess everybody, diplomats and things, if you talk to them off the record, will say so. But they kind of play this sort of, oh, we're a third power. And so it injects uh, ambiguity. And critics say that it basically weakens the West in the face of a more hostile China. Well, Clea, you know, here at Politico, we love to do what we call impact journalism. And I think you and Jamil nailed it. So congratulations. Cheers to more of that in 2024. Thank you. Well, that's all from us this week. If you enjoyed our 2023 wrap-up exercise, where we touched on everything from war to psychedelics, or if you're outraged because of something we didn't mention, do send us an email at podcast at politico.eu. Comments and ideas for future topics and guests are also welcome. And if you haven't done so, do follow EU Confidential on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode in 2024. Thank you to Diana Sturis, our senior audio producer, and Christina Gonzalez, Politico's executive producer for audio. Our team wishes you a relaxing holiday season and a happy start to 2024. I gotta tell ya, as a hardcore elections geek, I am pretty pumped for next year, and I can't wait for you to join us. <laughs>